0: Our Gospel reading is in the Gospel of Luke, 16th chapter, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner received evil things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can pass from here to us. He said, well, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will, be, will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for all of us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our children can be dismissed for children's church, children's worship. Anybody else want to escape while the getting's good? (laughs) There is so much energy that just left the room. And I know you're heartbroken about that. (laughs) I just love to see them, and I love the babies in our services today. Thank you. In 1845, Frederick Douglass, a former slave, a free man, and a strong abolitionist, wrote these words. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life. He who sells my sister for prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, babies sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. That was 1845. In 1963, Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, and he wrote, It is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. He went on to respond to those who told him to be patient, that the timing wasn't right for civil rights, that they must wait. And he wrote that, Wait rings in our ears with piercing familiarity. The wait has almost always meant never. We still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. And what strikes me so much about his letter from a Birmingham jail is that it was addressed to the clergy of Birmingham. In 2015, Dylan Roof massacred nine African-American people during their Bible study. He hoped to start a race war. His identity as a white Christian was central to his worldview and that identity easily accommodated his shift to white supremacy and to violence. The murders started prodding people to do something about all the Confederate monuments that litter our land. Mitch Lando was the mayor of New Orleans. And in a conversation with an African-American friend, he asked this man if he would serve on a committee. And he said he would, but he wanted something in return. He asked Landau to do away with the statue of Robert E. Lee. And Landau was shocked. He he didn't get it. And his friend said, you ever think what Robert E. Lee means to someone who's black? Well, Landau took action. To remove that statue and others and he describes the cold shoulders and averted eyes from friends and neighbors he told of riding his bike in the park early each morning for his exercise and of being yelled at consistently by the same woman and one particular Sunday she was more vicious and nasty than normal and a few hours later Lando and his wife attended Mass where he saw this same woman giving out communion. She was a Eucharistic minister. All of these instances echo a similar theme. Persons of power and influence and community respect and religion using their positions and using people to preserve their privilege. We find the same thing in our text in this ugly story. An Armani-dressed man separated by a gate from a diseased man who has been unceremoniously dumped at his gate. Somehow he manages to step over or around him. He doesn't want to see him. The rich man reflected the theology of his day that wealth was his blessing that he had earned this this goodness from God and that Lazarus was cursed with suffering because somehow he had sinned. And so he had privilege and power and religion to support him and numb his conscience. that gross little detail about the dogs licking his sores. In that day, they thought a dog's saliva had medicinal value. Even the dogs were kinder to Lazarus than was this rich man. Then Luke's gospel tells of a a great reversal. The Lazarus dies and is carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, the founder of their faith. It's an intimate note of Abraham being embraced, you know, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. And I will not sing that to you. I do have some kindness left in my soul. <laughs> and when the rich man suffers torment, only then does he see Lazarus, sort of. But the peril of, a peril of his privilege is that he can only see Lazarus as somebody to fetch water for him or be a messenger boy, someone to do his bidding. He shows the the rich man still does not see Lazarus as fully human. He doesn't grasp the image of Lazarus held on Abraham's lap and being comforted like a baby is comforted by mom. the perils of privilege. A person with everything, but unable to see life clearly, blinded by a way of thinking he thought himself blessed because he was wealthy, he thought himself righteous and deserving, the theologians of his day said so. And there's a prosperity gospel in our land that says pretty much the same thing today. Yet he cannot see a human being at his gate, nor can he hear the call to comfort. And in his torment, he recognizes Lazarus, calls him by name, and that makes his indifference to him all the more repugnant. He's left someone known to him. He's left him hungry and begging and diseased and has done nothing. The story goes on. And forgive me, I take kind of a delight in this because it seems to me that Jesus is tweaking their theological noses. In the story, Abraham says to the rich man in life, you got good things, but he does not say that wealth was given by God. And He says in life, Lazarus got bad things, but he does not say those bad things were given by God. And he says there is this great chasm now fixed between us, but he doesn't say, God, fix that chasm. No, that chasm has been carved by years of neglect and indifference and greed and self righteousness. What we do with our privileges, those things determine our lives. Sadly, we may create a gulf that separates us from others. Sadly, we may create a gulf that separates us from our own humanity. Abraham addresses the rich man with the tender word, child, modeling for him the tenderness with which he could have seen Lazarus and acted, how he could have seen his own wealth as opportunity to feed and heal, and befriend. And for the rich man, it is a harsh word spoken with tenderness. You see, our text is not just about wealth, but about the privileges afforded by wealth. And I think of the privileges afforded to me. I am white, I am male, and I am educated and there's so much that comes to me that I'm not even aware of much of it. What shall I do with my privilege and the power of my own life? What will you do with yours? Every Friday night, we have a worship service in here, sometimes out on the lawn. And every Friday night after that service, there's a 12-step program that meets in our fellowship hall. And sometimes on that Friday night in the church service that meets in here, we celebrate those folks who have one month of sobriety or six months of sobriety or a year or five years of sobriety. And I know that they will leave this service and they will go downstairs to the fellowship hall and there there will be people who are coming for the first time in brokenness, in shame, and humiliation, saying their names and admitting to being alcoholic. And I know that these folks will hear the name and that they will accept and embrace and help this person begin a journey of healing because humility reigns. They have the power to bless. And I don't think there's anybody here that's got much more than two nickels to rub together. But they take that power that's theirs, and they bless. What shall we do with our privileges and our opportunities? Maybe some of you are following Aaron Judge, the New York Yankee star who's already hit 60 home runs this year and tied Babe Ruth's record. Maybe many of you don't really care about that. I'm sorry for you. <laughs> On May the 3rd of this year, Derek Rodriguez was a 10-year-old boy from Venezuela in the stands in Toronto, Canada. His family had emigrated there a couple years before to escape the grinding poverty of Venezuela and try to find some kind of new life. At that time, he would have been seven, maybe eight years old. Can you imagine leaving everything you ever knew, the language that you know, the friends you have? In Toronto, he was lost. And baseball was his lifeline. And Aaron Judge was his hero. Judge plays for the Yankees, and they were at a game with the Toronto Blue Jays. And they sat in those stands that day, and there were other people there, one named Mike Lanzalota, a Blue Jay fan, who thought first they might talk smack to this boy wearing an Aaron Judge jersey, and then he thought better of it and just talked with him and caught the sense of exuberance this little boy had for baseball. And as things turned out, Aaron Judge hit a home run and Lanzalota caught the ball and immediately turned and gave it to this 10-year-old Derek. He doesn't know this boy, really, but he sees him with understanding and takes the privilege of a Major League Baseball and gives it to him. Think of all the social pressure in our culture, pushing, shoving us to see others as enemies, to see disagreement as causes to ignore. The politicians and the pundits with positions of power and privilege stirring up hate and feeding suspicion. But in our story, this poor man has a name, Lazarus. And in the story, and in today, we are called to see each other. Businessman Oskar Schindler arrived in Krakow, Poland in 1939. He was ready to make a fortune manufacturing war material for the German Nazi war machine. He joined the Nazi party primarily for the expedience and because the German Nazis could supply him with cheap Jewish labor. Schindler arranged protection for his workers to keep his factory operational. Soon he realized he was also protecting innocent lives as the Nazis, as the Gestapo, went about exterminating Jews in the ghetto of Krakow and in the awful extermination camp called Auschwitz. By all accounts, he was greedy and opportunistic, but he changed. He began saying, I need more and more of the Jew prisoners to help. He didn't, but he lied to save them. He kept pulling more and more prisoners out of the camp for his factory And by the end of the war, at the risk of his life, he had saved 1,100 Jews. He lost his fortune doing that, and he never got it back. But when Lazarus was dumped at his gate, he did not step over and around. He bent to help with his wealth. What shall we do with our power and our privilege? Seeing that people have names, seeing that they matter, the text tells us that wealth is not our sin. It is our opportunity. In our world, we have thousands of brown people dumped at our borders by poverty, by drought, by violence. And yes, a few are criminals, but there's a lower percentage of criminals there than there are in our own general population and a much lower percentage than what exists in congress <laughs> some people ignore them and there's just indifference and some lie to them and ship them somewhere else few few bring their power to bear on compassionate, constructive, creative solutions to help the Lazarus dumped at our gate. What shall we do with our power, Highland? With the coming transfer of baby boomer wealth, and I am a baby boomer on the leading edge of that, with our dying will come the largest transfer of wealth in history. And as my generation dies off, we will be creating a permanent underclass of African Americans. What shall we do? One of Highland's answers excites me. We have a capital campaign for an HVAC system. I never thought I'd say HVAC in a sermon. Nobody wants to sweat or shiver during a worship service. Though if you wear a robe, you get to do that. HVAC is not something we get worked up about. But our task force brought us this wonderful solution of a climate-friendly response to our own physical need and a spiritually responsible response of using African-American contractors so that we are good stewards of our wealth. And so I say HVAC with a great deal of joy and pride in you. Here at Highland, we are a people of privilege and economic well-being. What shall we do with it? Amen.